Foreign Veterinary Education Journal. This is the EVE podcast with your host, Emma Carter. Welcome to the May edition of the EVE podcast. Today we shall be speaking to Rachel Tucker, describing a novel surgical approach to osteochondrosis of the neck, and Cornelly Vesterman gives a great practical review of treatment options for atypical myopathy. The second interview with Rachel Tucker begins at 14 minutes into the podcast. All papers can be accessed via the Early View articles on the Wiley Online Library, searching Equine Veterinary Education Journal. Review article. First up is Cornelly Vesterman. Dr. Vesterman is an assistant professor of equine internal medicine at Utrecht University. She is a Dutch specialist in internal medicine and a diplomat and past president of the European College of Internal Medicine. Dr. Vesterman discusses her review article titled Evidence-Based Therapy for Atypical Myopathy in Horses. Welcome, Dr. Vesterman. Thank you very much. Could you briefly describe the pathophysiology of atypical myopathy? Yes, I will. Atypical myopathy horses eat seeds, leaves or seedlings of the maple tree and especially the sycamore tree, which you call it in English, and the normal acer tree we call it in Holland. If they eat those products, they eat the toxin hypoglycin A, which is in there. It's an amino acid. And in the body, this toxin is converted to MCPA. It's MCPA disables important enzymes, and the enzymes are called dehydrogenases. By destroying the enzymes, they stop the normal process of cutting long-chain fatty acids into usable pieces for energy in the fat metabolism. The result of this is an enormous increase in toxic byproducts, destroying muscle cells, and a decrease in usable energy. So the fat metabolism has become useless. This only happens in a special type of muscle, the type 1 muscle, which is postural and respiratory muscles, and a little bit of the myocardium muscles as well. What are the clinical signs and biochemistry associated with animals which suffer from this condition? Yeah, The clinical signs that the owner and the practitioner mostly sees is that the horse is getting weaker, his gait is difficult, and he really wants to lie down so become recumbent. The horse is also sweating and he develops respiratory difficulties. What's really good, easy to see as a clinical sign and that you have to uh, watch out for is the urine. The urine gets myoglobinuria, which makes it like coffee colored. If you suspect a horse having the disease, it's the most easy biochemistry thing is to measure the muscle enzymes because all those cells are destroyed, muscle enzymes are released and they can be easily measured in the blood. More sophisticated way, but that takes time and money, is to check all the metabolites of fat metabolism in urine and in blood, but that has to be done in a specialized center. Are there any genetic or predispositions to atypical myopathy or horses that seem to be more affected? Um, No. That's the easy answer. And the bigger answer is that there's definitely no genetic uh, influence. We have checked it thoroughly. And in humans, the disease is a genetic disease, but in horses, it's not. And if you say the breed dispositions, uh, not really, but it's occurring in breeds that are housed outside. So it's the 
typical breeds that are uh, not the sport horses, but the Icelandic horses, the fell ponies, the uh, fjord, the old horses, the very young horses, etc. So it's not a breed thing, but it's a management predisposition. What are the aims of treatment? Simply said, it's trying to increase the chance of survival. Because it's a difficult disease, at the moment, 70% of the animals dies. So how do we increase the chance on survival? Unfortunately, there is no causal therapy. You can't give any medicine and cure the disease. But most important therapy, which is not really a therapy, is prevention. So if there's anything you see, get the other horses out of the fields. So prevent other horses from getting ill. And to go back to the real uh, disease, the treatment are uh, flushing toxins out with fluids, rehydrating and correct imbalances. So it takes a lot of uh, fluid. Provide alternative energy because the fatty acid metabolism has been destroyed. So try to provide more energy by glucose uh, metabolism or amino acid metabolism. The easiest one is glucose metabolism, but then you need to have possibility to measure glucose in the blood. Otherwise, it's difficult to treat with glucose and insulin together. The third thing is to get rid of the toxin. I already, and the metabolites, I already said fluids is very important to flush them out, basically. But carnitine can help by binding toxic metabolites and helping them be eliminated uh, through the urine. The fourth aims of treatment is to support the damaged mitochondrium. This muscle cells are destroyed, the mitochondria are damaged, so there are some medications that help to support damaged mitochondrial function, like vitamin E and uh, riboflavin, vitamin B, D, selenium and carnitine as well. And very important aim of treatment is also analgesia. It's a horse with damaged muscle cells, so it must hurt. So have so many destroyed muscle cells, so analgesia is also very important. Many of these horses have a tendency towards hyperglycemia or are hyperglycemic on first view. On a practical note, is it advisable to try to normalise blood glucose levels with insulin before commencing with a glucose strip? Or do you think it's best to give both therapies together? Yeah, but that's the thing that many practitioners wonder. So that's an interesting question you ask. Um, if you're in practice and you don't have a handheld glucometer or any apparatus, it's it's difficult. It's a bit tricky to uh, yeah to to try to use insulin because you don't want a hypoglycemic horse. But if you have, uh, I think it's no problem to give a glucose drip anyway because the horse doesn't suffer so much from hyperglycemia if there's too much glucose in the blood uh, he will excrete it through urine so i'm not really worried about the high glucose but it gets more useful as an energy source by using insulin so the brilliant thing to have would be the handheld glucometer and then you can try to give glucose and a little bit of insulin and you can control it so if you're well, I call it practitioner plus, uh, with a little bit more materials and, and possibilities and interest in it, then I think it's really valuable to, to use both because you get a better energy source in this way. And you, well, the horse has more chance, I think, I believe. 
What are the first practical interventions you should do on suspicion or confirmation of atypical myopathy diagnosis? Well, that's a good question. I think if you're there uh, as a practitioner and you see the horse, I think the first thing is to be sure the stop the movements when, of course, the horse doesn't want to move so much, but be uh, conscious of um, the, the, the muscle problems that, if you transport a horse to a clinic like driving two hours, a lot more serious than at that time because transport is really difficult for the for the muscles. But if there is a short trip to a significantly better place, I think that's that's a good thing as well because let, keeping him in the middle of the field without shelter and, and no possibilities of fluids and stuff, that's not good as well. But you have to have a lot of fluids in your car, and if it's a big horse, at 20 liters is nothing. So be sure to have, well, big bags of fluids already in your car if you're doing equine medicine. One of the first practical interventions would be, in my opinion, to get give him analgesics. And I would give charcoal as well by the tubing, because charcoal doesn't hurt. It's, it has no disadvantages, and maybe there's still some toxin left in the gut. So if there's, it, yeah, it prevents from getting worse. I would take blood samples of the co-grazers and the patients to see if the other horses suffer as well and get uh, remove the co-grazers uh, as soon as possible from the field. Could you give us an overview of the current therapies which are in use? Well, there's no golden therapy still in the news and I think it's, again, it's not a therapy, but it's prevention. Get rid of the leaves, the seeds, and the seedlings. The fluids is number two. Analgetics, please don't give alpha-2 agonists because they inhibit insulin release and gets worse. Carnitin is a current therapy that's getting more known in Holland. And I think in a lot of more countries, you can order uh, intravenous carnitine in uh, human pharmacies. It helps eliminate by binding to the toxic metabolites, helps to get fatty acid oxidation going better. Riboflavin, vitamin B, you can get in pharmacy. Vitamin E you can give. And uh, the glucose in the insulin, of course. And there's a little, the charcoal or laxatives are uh, current therapies. And there's I'm interested in uh, amino acid called glycine because glycine does bind on the same receptors as hypoglycine. So it's, looks, it seems really easy to give glycine and kick away the hypoglycine from the receptors, but it's not that easy as we think because there are a lot of studies about glycine and half of the studies say that glycine has toxic bi-effects as well. So that's still something we have to do a lot of research upon. And after completing the review, is there anything which has changed your practice fundamentally? Um, yeah, some things I learned from my students <laughs> finding all this information that I rather prefer charcoal instead of mineral oil because they both have the same aim of getting rid of the toxin that's still in the gut, but mineral oil also empties the, the gut system, and we need some gut also for energy. So I think charcoal is, is better than mineral oil, and it has caused my curiosity about this glycine thing. So I really want to do more research upon that. 
uh, but I still need some partners because there's not much budget. But And I've changed practice. I really liked the cooperation with Lidwin Fabi as my student. And I, I wanna, I'm planning on having a lot more students doing practical theses instead of well, non-practical thesis because it's yeah, it seems to be useful. Certainly, this paper has provided a really nice, concise description of the treatments and also the practical administrations of them as well. Do you think in future it might be possible to develop a specific chelating agent for the toxin? If I'm really honest, I think the answer uh, has to be no because I think you're too late. To if you uh, give chelating uh, agents, because hypoglycin will already be absorbed. We don't know, as long as we have the horses in the fields with the maple leaves and seedlings and seeds, we don't know when they've eaten them. We do know basically how long it takes to be absorbed, can be absorbed within a few hours already. Maybe if we're lucky, it takes to 48 hours, but then we're really lucky. So the minute we give chelating agents, we might be too late to have it. So prevention will really always be the the, the big thing. So that's a little bit negative. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so far, we still have to hope that there's something in the gut still uh, available. And we have to search for medicine removes the hypoglycine from the receptor. So we have to search one bit further, I think. But the problem is that we noticed the clinical problems the moment that already the muscle enzymes have been released and the muscle cells are broken so somehow it's the answer is still in prevention and to see the first symptoms of stiff walking or even yeah, learning to read our fields and pastures to see if there's any uh, maple elements in them. Well, thank you very much for providing us with a, a really insightful description of your paper. Okay, you're very welcome. Case Report Rachel Tucker is a European Specialist Orthopaedic Surgeon. She is working in private equine practice in the UK. Rachel previously completed her surgical residency at the Royal Veterinary College London, where this case presented. Rachel is discussing her paper titled Arthroscopic Treatment for Cervical Articular Process Joint Osteochondrosis in a Thoroughbred Horse. Welcome, Rachel. Could you tell us about the presenting clinical picture and signalment in this horse? So this was a yearling racing thoroughbred that was presented as a referral to the Royal Veterinary College. Seen by the referring vet on several occasions, presenting with clinical signs consistent with neck pain. Uh, it had been found in the field, reluctant to move, with its head extended, head lowered, pain evident on manipulation of the neck and this had been treated and managed to a degree with conservative treatment box rest and non-steroidal therapy but the signs kept returning causing the vet to want to look into further options for for investigation and treatment. What were the results of the diagnostic investigations which you performed? This horse underwent a thorough clinical evaluation initially. It was found to be clinically well in, in every aspect other than signs that we felt were consistent with neck pain. So the horse was sound. There were no neurological deficits noted on a neurological exam. But the horse did have a stiff neck, reluctant to 
flex its neck and resented lateral uh, movement of the neck if you tried to flex its neck from one side to the other. But other than that, there was really nothing much more to see on initial clinical examination. Previously, um, the horse had been much more severely in pain in its neck. What were the results of radiographs taken? So radiographs taken of the horse under sedation showed fragments quite clear to see on the oblique projections affecting the dorsal margin of the articular process between C4 and C5. The oblique views showed this quite clearly. And there were some other findings as well at the time that we were a little uncertain of the significance. The um, articular processes of C6 and C7 were bilaterally enlarged and then the intervertebral ratios that were performed were slightly narrowed as well but although the horse showed no signs of ataxia we weren't particularly concerned at that time. It's a challenging area to visualise through descriptive but could you just give us a quick overview of the anatomy of that area? So I can give you a, a brief description. It's always helpful to look at the images to help you or look at some specimens or pictures where you can but the articular processes are lateral projections off the cervical vertebra so they're present in the, from the second to the seventh cervical vertebra they are synovial articulations and they're paired and they sit abaxial to the spinal cord and the spinal column so given the results of your investigations what did you feel were your options in terms of treatment at that time So we had this young horse with no clinical signs of neurological disease, but consistent and recurrent signs of neck pain, with our most significant finding being the radiographic evidence of a fragment on the abaxial margin of this articular process joint. And we did have a few treatment options. We could have continued conservative therapy, which wasn't a valid option in in the owner's eyes since that had already been tried um, without much success or without consistent success. We could have um, medicated that particular process joint with corticosteroids with a view to settling down any pain uh, associated with that fragment in that joint. But we felt that that hopefully provides some benefit but that it was only likely to be short term given the presence of the fragment there. As an alternative surgical option to the one taken in this paper, ventral stabilisation for effectively arthrodesing that articulation could potentially have resolved pain related to mobility of that joint. But that was seen as quite an extreme approach to the problem that we were presented with. And that leaves the final option that we took in this paper, which was to proceed with removing that fragment from within the joint. What were the factors that led you to making the decision to attempt fragment removal? Well, there's quite a lot to consider and to communicate with the owners with regard to the surgical procedure that we undertook. The first is that it has never been done before, to the best of our knowledge. certainly hadn't been written up in the literature. Uh, The surgeons at the Royal Veterinary College hadn't performed it before on on a live horse. And so the owners needed to be carefully counselled as to the the pros and cons and risks and and benefits of undertaking a a relatively unknown procedure. From the perspective of the horse itself, the fact that it was the C4, C5 articular process joint meant that it was an accessible joint, um, given that it wasn't too close to the the neck, the base of the neck and the shoulder, which would have been more challenging. And it was one of the larger process joints of the neck. 
So we felt fairly confident that the joint could be accessed. The horse also, very importantly, wasn't ataxic. So we considered that there was no clinical evidence of spinal cord compression, making surgery more likely to be successful, given that we were really the aim of the game was to remove what we considered was fragment-causing neck pain. And it's relatively straightforward to extrapolate the thinking of removing a, an OCD fragment from a, a joint in a horse's limb. Um, if that's causing pain and we can remove that, then if we could adapt the process to, to perform the same procedure in, in a, a different synovial joint, then um, we were optimistic that it would produce a similar result. And finally, another consideration was the required outcome of the surgery. This horse needed to be an athlete, and so just making it more comfortable for a while or some sort of palliative type treatment wasn't really an option. This horse needed to be completely pain-free at the end of its treatment and able to perform its job. So all of these factors were considered, and really the benefit of being in a large university meant that we had a, a really skilled multidisciplinary team that could all play a part in providing information and helping with the decision-making process. What was the benefit in performing a pre-operative CT scan of the horse, given that you'd made a diagnosis with radiographs? It was hugely beneficial to us to have the CT scan and to be able to evaluate the fragment in, in 3D. Horses next as anyone who's taken neck radiographs will, will uh, I'm sure, appreciate, horses' necks are quite difficult to evaluate and changes are quite difficult to interpret on on 2D imaging just because of the superimposition of other structures of the neck. And the CT provided really useful information in, in definitively and accurately defining the location of the fragment in, in 3D and just giving us that bit more confidence that the surgical procedure was appropriate. It confirmed to us that the fragment was intra-articular for a start and it allowed accurate surgical planning to allow us to approach the fragment appropriately at surgery. Is this approach one you've used for similar cases? Uh, no, it isn't. Arthroscopy of the articular processes has been written up by Pepe et al. in a really nice paper where they scoped a number of horses at post-mortem. They used a slightly different approach in that they made stab incisions down to the joint rather than an open approach. And they also did scope a few cases with arthritis, I believe. So they did examine some clinical cases. So we knew that it was possible. We knew that it had been done. We'd done cadaver work ourselves. But this was the first time that this surgery had been used, certainly at the RVC anyway, in a live horse to remove bone fragments from an articular process joint. What are the difficulties or challenges with attempting this sort of procedure? The main challenge really was access to the joint. So in this case, with the benefit of the pre-op CT performed immediately before surgery, we were able to, to place um, markers over the correct joint. And then uh, the most important aspect really of, of being accurate with our surgical approach was then using intraoperative ultrasound to scan the articular process joint and, and just guide uh, our surgical incision. Additionally, then once we've made the approach, the articular process joint is relatively small. It doesn't hold, uh, I think it's just a couple of mils of, of joint fluid in a normal articular process joint. Although we did discover that once the joint was distended, it was very much 
larger than than we were anticipating. Um, but we were definitely helped by using a small diameter arthroscope, uh, which allowed surprisingly good mobility vi visualization around the joint. Um, it was a little bit fiddly to um, place the scope and um, arthroscopic rangers to remove the fragment, but it, but it was certainly possible. Um, extravasation of fluid wasn't an issue as we anticipated it might be, and perhaps a cut down approach allowed egress of fluid um, more easily than um, just stab incisions would have done. Um, and then obviously, we also needed to make sure that we made an accurate approach to avoid um, the um, spinal nerve uh, at that location. And we were certainly a fair way away from the spinal cord. That wasn't a, so much of a concern. What was the outcome for this yearling? So initially, very good, but only for a very short space of time, unfortunately. So immediately post-operatively, the horse recovered well from its anaesthetic, um, with a very smooth post-op recuperation. And at a clinical examination back at the yard, the horse was looking fantastic at four weeks post-surgery with no clinical signs of neck pain or neck stiffness. The stiff gait that the horse had initially been showing had resolved and we were all fairly optimistic that we'd done a, a great job with this case. Unfortunately, just a couple of weeks later on, at six weeks post-surgery, the horse was found cast in its stable and once up was found to be ataxic on all four limbs. Exactly how this course of events came to happen is always going to be unknown. There's all sorts of things that we can speculate as to how this clinical picture panned out. Perhaps the horse was always destined to become ataxic. It did have quite significant OCD changes in a number of particular processes, and it did have those slightly reduced intervertebral ratios on its initial radiographs. Perhaps the surgery in some way did predispose this horse to, to become ataxic. One theory is that a horse with a more comfortable neck, less muscular spasm, may be more at risk of some instability becoming clinically significant. Fortunately, we will never know for certain. And what were the findings at post-mortem? Was there anything that supported your hypotheses? Yeah, so the PM showed um, that... Uh, the fragment bed where the OCD fragment had been removed was uh, healing with uh, fibrous uh, tissue, fibrocartilage. There was no uh, sign of any spinal cord compression related to the surgical site, although there was also no sign of spinal cord compression at any site along the neck, either grossly or um, on histopathological examination, which surprised me because this uh, yearling clearly had clinical signs of cervical cord compression with its quite significant ataxia of all four limbs, um, although it hadn't been ataxic for a very long period of time. So we could suppose that either pathological changes hadn't yet been created in the neck or just weren't evident pathologically. There were also other OCD changes affecting other process joints. The C3 articulation was involved. And so it was clear that actually this fragment was quite large and quite significant, we assume, but it was just the tip of the iceberg, really, in the OCD that was 
occurring in this horse's neck and perhaps the fact that there was so much going on gave it in the end a poorer prognosis than we initially anticipated. Quite a large fragment that you took out. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Size. yeah, it really was. Um, it, it was quite something to remove, even though we had all the dimension on, on the CT scan. It was very abaxial, just on the border of the articular process joint, so, so really very well away from the spinal cord itself. So it's hard to imagine how that site could directly cause spinal cord compression and it would have been great to have found that exact location at PM where the ataxia was originating from but unfortunately it wasn't possible to ascertain. How has this case influenced your recommendations for future cases? This case has really been important I think in advising and discussing further cases that may present in a similar fashion to this. I think in the first instance it shows that Horses can have OCD in their neck and don't have to be ataxic. So we think of type 1 CVM, so CVM in young horses causing ataxia, and one possible cause is OCD. But now I'll certainly take into consideration any other cases of neck pain in in any age of horse, really, that are articular process. Disease is a factor, and particularly in young horses, OCD um, lesions may be a factor. So it sort of certainly flags up some differentials that may not be initially considered for for horse with neck pain. And then with regard to considering removing OCD fragments from articular process joints in the future, it has really informed us with regard to the fact that it's not necessarily a procedure that we should shy away from because the surgical procedure went very smoothly with appropriate imaging and equipment and facilities. But obviously, there's certainly quite careful communication to be made with all relevant parties as to the possible benefits and risks and outcomes. Certainly, having seen the ataxia in this case, the resulting ataxia, that needs to be discussed very carefully as a possibility with owners. And also, I think we want to take into careful consideration any other pathology in the neck that's evident on radiographs or CT and consider that that may also play a part. So I think this case highlights that in certain cases, fragments can be removed from articular process joints. And now it's been done, you know, we know it's possible, but it's just hugely important that each individual case is taken on its own merits CT was very worthwhile doing, in our opinion, and it did require careful client communication and and consideration of all the possible pros and cons that may result. So in certain selective cases, I think it is an appropriate course of action to take. That was Rachel Tucker giving us an elegant description of her case of arthroscopic treatment for cervical articular process joint osteochondrosis. Well, that's it for this edition of the Equine Veterinary Education Journal podcast. Thank you all for listening. This and other podcasts can be found by searching Equine Veterinary Education on iTunes, Podbean or via the Wiley Online Library. Join us again for the next edition. Thank you and goodbye. This is the Equine Veterinary Education Journal podcast.